holiness. There's a, a horrible connotation. So when you think of holiness or living holy lives, what comes to your mind as I've asked this question of people, both inside and outside of the church, the responses are actually more negative, overwhelmingly negative, than positive. Oh, when I'm around holy people, it just makes me feel so terrible. They're so arrogant. Oh, I can never do that. I can't even relate to that. It's so irrelevant. I ask you this, when you think of holiness or holy living, and whatever answer is, where did you get that thought? Where did that thought come from that makes it positive or negative for you? So what you were taught is what you experienced, what you see, what the media portrays. Because how we think about holiness matters. It matters a lot. So, very briefly, and, and, and I've got to break things down to their smallest component for me to understand. So to get to the foundational side of what is holiness or holy living, this is what holy means. Holy, go to the next slide. Holiness actually means distinct, unique, different, or set apart. It doesn't mean you sit around and read the Bible for 11 hours a day. Okay? So if something is distinct or different or unique or set apart, uh, separate, that is what holiness is. Which makes sense that we see God as being holy. We are finite people, and, and we're broken, and we're sinful. God is infinite, and is whole, and is perfect in all that He does, making Him us very set apart, and different, and unique from us. So I think this is really important for us to understand, because then when we see things like the Holy Bible, or the Holy Spirit, or Holy God, we can see that this, this one's different, this is unique, this is set apart. Um, this is in its own category in and of itself. And God seems to care a great deal about holiness. The idea of holiness or holy is mentioned almost 600 times in our Bibles. This is a big deal. This is a really big deal. There are entire Old Testament books devoted to holiness. Not only is God holy, but He actually calls His followers to be holy, which immediately right away say, whoa, there's tension there, because I know I'm not, but how do I do that? God desires His children to live differently, to live set apart from the culture around us. So what is holy living? And that's what holy is. What does holy living look like? Well, holy living is an intentional pursuit of God's heart. An intentional pursuit of God's heart. And I want to be careful because most people would define holiness as this. Don't do that. Don't do that. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. Holiness wasn't intended to be defined in its negative connotation. It actually was intended to be defined in its positive connotation. And so when we do that, the Psalms and the Proverbs, they show us that following Jesus, following God, leads us to hating evil. Romans tells us flat out that we have to hate what is evil to love what is good. We cannot love both good and evil. And the implication is that the more we grow to love God, the more we will hate you. Well, a few times we've heard the hate in our Bibles. Hate evil. Don't think it's a bad idea. Don't tolerate it. Don't say, oh, we should stop it. Hate evil. Hate evil. First Peter, uh, Peter is writing this to the early Christians. He says, so prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ has revealed to the world. So you must know this God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. 
better. But now you must be holy in everything you can do. Just as God who chose you is holy. Conversations I've had over the last several years with uh, with people, both inside and outside the church, um, about this idea of holiness. There's normally four main responses that I get, and as we're diving into this um, series, I, I want us to start by making sure that we we look at these four, and maybe you can identify yourself in that. Have an honest self check. See if, if you're nodding usually saying, yep, yep, that's where I'm at. Because I think this can be helpful for us to, to unpack some things in weeks to come. So here's, here's the first one. I've tried. It's too hard to live a right life, so I give up. In fact, God must hate me because I'm so far from holy, he probably will never forgive me. And this is a big one. This misunderstanding of God's love and his grace and how that works. Sort of this resignation mindset. Like, what's the point? Like, I'm so far behind anyway. I, I just, I, I should just give up. And maybe you've tried to self-help me. And maybe you've experienced hopelessness. Because when I look at even the Ten Commandments, I can't get but just a few words in before I say I've already blown it. I've already blown it. How in the world could I possibly do what we read in 1 Peter when I can't even get through the first, the first few words of the Ten Commandments? And that's moral fatalism. Where we just say, you know, it is what it is, and what's, what's the word? What's the worth trying? And here's another response. Look at me. I've got my life together, and God must love me more than other people, and look at you, God must love you as you. Now, we may not articulate it that way, verbally, but in our spirit, that may be where we're at. You know, I'm bad, but at least I'm not now. You know, God has a pretty good loving me compared to loving that person. And what that does, it just destroys our, our soul and destroys our understanding of God and His amazing love for us. We talk here at Renew about no perfect people allowed. Um, we have told some people, it's been a while, but there are some people that came in with the spirit of, of being all high and mighty. And I told them, I said, I think you're going to struggle here at this church. I said, you're welcome to be here, but I think you're going to struggle because I'm not sure you really understand that when we say no perfect people allowed, we really mean it. And I said, I'm not kicking you out, I'm just telling you. This is the trajectory I'm anticipating this going. And within a few weeks, they don't go from that. It's hard to connect here at Purdue for people who think they have their stuff together. But I see no need for God, no need for a rescue. This is self sufficiency and modern day Phariseeism. We just have no place for it here at Purdue. You know, I remember hearing a metaphor in high school that was really helpful for me. You know, you're writing a resume, and everything's got to be perfect. The formatting, the wording, the typos, just every last little deal. And you got two sheets of paper, one is trash, and 
dirty and crumpled up, and the other just has one black mark, a small straight through it. Well, which one are you going to use for your resin? The truth is, neither one of them. Because you need something perfect in order to turn in uh, a job. And it'll be a poor reflection. And oftentimes, if we come and say, I only got one mark for this. At least I'm not that tattered paper over there. We're missing the whole point. We're not going to use either one because neither one is, is the standard where we need to be. And so we stop comparing ourselves to one another. Instead, we start comparing ourselves to God. Here's the, here's the one that comes up a lot as well. God will forgive me no matter what I do, right? If so, can't I just do what I want? I mean, everybody does it. What's the big deal? Who cares? As long as nobody's hurt or impacted by my decisions, it doesn't really matter. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about this idea of cheap grace. There was between cheap grace and costly grace. Cheap grace says, what's the big deal? So what? I mean, like, he's going to forgive me anyway. I'll just do it. No biggie. Right? That would be, the husbands, that would be like saying about your wife, you know what? It doesn't matter. I, I just have a bunch of affairs and my wife will just take me back every time. You go, wait a second, what? That's more revealing about uh, your level and depth of love for your wife than it is your own life, I think, in, in terms of your moral standards. See, we begin to treat God like a cosmic genie in a bottle, right? You do something, hey God, you got it again. Yeah, thank you. And we begin to treat God as sort of this, this he's got a ledger, this abacus back and forth. Oh, oh you, okay, we'll slide over here. Oh, you did well this week. You know what? Ah, we have this countercultural call in our lives to be God's people. And that's not how we approach it as this common genie of all. This is, when we, when we do this, this is moral relativism. This is cheap grace. It's also veiled narcissism, assuming that we're the center of the universe. I can do what I want, and God will do what I want Him to do, and that's forgive me and give me the get out of jail free card every time I land in this land. Now, here's the other one that comes up that's also veiled. I don't want to be legal, legalistic about it, you know? I mean, I don't want to appear all high and mighty and holier than thou. I mean, who am I to judge? I can't judge others. I'll be a hypocrite because I'm not holy myself. This is one of the most popular. <coughs> Os Guinness, uh, who's a writer and thinker about just culturally uh, insightful in how he thinks through um, Christians' engagement with the world. He said, he said this, we live in a time where it's worse to judge evil than to do evil. We live in a time where it's worse to judge evil than to do evil. You know, I have to chuckle when I, when I hear someone say that biting, sarcastic statement, you know? Who are you to judge? Wait, wait, time out. Do you know what you you just judged me for judging someone else. It's one of the quickest ways to, to identify the most blatantly obvious 
examples of, different, of, of hypocrisy in our culture. Who are you to judge? You just judge me for judging. See, that whole idea of like, you know, I don't want to be legalistic, you know. I can't judge others and be a hypocrite. That sounds very loving, but it's actually not. And it's a, a massive misunderstanding of what judging and what love actually means. Love is way more than unconditional acceptance of others, no matter what they do. If you won't let me get away with everything, and you knew about it, and you didn't tell me, I would not think that you were a loving congregation. And vice versa. Now, love seeks what is best for others, even when it's painful for everyone involved. Let me say that again, because that's huge. Love seeks what's best for each other, even when it's painful for everyone involved. The Who Am I to Judge mindset's been a big accusation, unfortunately, here within our church. Because of one woman who called out another woman's sin and renew, and the other, woman, other women are holding this whistleblower, uh, holding it against her, saying, I can't believe she did that. Look at her own. And there's nothing more than fair say in nonsense. Now people regularly say, Christians are just hypocrites. You know what I like to say? You're exactly right. Christians are the only ones to admit it. <laughs> but here's, here's the deal. If we understand God's holiness, we actually have to make sure we understand God's love. God's holiness in His love together are a beautiful thing. The problem is, when we overemphasize one and underemphasize the other, we get into all sorts of problems. See, all four of the approaches and the responses that I get regularly that I just shared have been are really just a misconstrued idea of God's holiness and His love. God's holiness results in His love, and His love flows out of His holiness. Holiness and love, they have to work together. Because that's who, that's God's character. And if we aren't embracing that, we are actually representing the God who asks us to represent Him well, your own. A loving Father does not allow His children to do whatever they want and they not care what they do. See, everything that we're after at Renew and everything we're after here as followers of Jesus is about love. Everything. Including God's holiness. But it's easy to overemphasize the John 3.16 God and then forget about the Leviticus and Deuteronomy God. Some people like to emphasize the Leviticus and Deuteronomy God. Hateful, you know, hateful picketers that often end up in the news. And then never address the deep love that God has for us. See, when holiness is divorced from love, it's destructive. When love is divorced from holiness, it's destructive. If we value one or the over the other, we have an inaccurate view of God. We have to understand both, but we don't understand the nature of God. So if renew is a place that overemphasizes holiness, and yet seldom 
embraces and celebrates God's love, and we become legalistic, pompous, condescending, judgmental, miserable, hypocritical people. And who wants to be a part of that? But we have to avoid going to the other end of the pendulum. If we're new as a church that overemphasizes love, and yet seldom if ever talks about God's holiness, then we communicate a God who's really soft, and therefore grace is cheapened, and we suddenly begin to believe that we can do whatever we want, because the Santa Claus God will look down at us and say, it's all right, buddy, it's not that big a deal, don't worry And when we do that, we actually take the power out of the cross that Jesus died for us for something of great significance. Because if we minimize holiness, the cross becomes very, very visible. And conversely, we become hypocritical. You see, both approaches are wrong. Overemphasizing holiness and underemphasizing love. Overemphasizing love and underemphasizing holiness. If we get that wrong, we are mistaken. So what do we do about it? What if we want to take this idea of holiness or holy living seriously, personally, as well as as an entire church? A couple things I want to suggest. The first one is to train naked. To train naked. To you know, penis, nakedness, what else has he got? <laughs> Here's what it says in 1 Timothy 4. Have nothing to do with the godlessness and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holy promise for both the present life and the life to come. Now again, I'm not trying to be all like high and mighty and um, fancy with my words. I mean, I have to look this up, okay? And I may be wrong. Johnny's our Greek expert in the back. But um, the, the word there uh, for exercise or train is gymnasium, or gymnasium, right? Now, quite literally, it means to train naked. That's what the Greeks did in the gym. Now, Greeks were seen as really scandalous people to the Jews because they not only trained naked and then relaxed in the, the spas and the bathhouses naked, they did it mixing between men and women. And so it's just scandalous. It's not something the Jews would ever want to associate with. Yet that's what Paul uses to describe what we're supposed to do. Train naked. Using a Greek term. Now why does Paul use this startling imagery for us when we think about holy living? I think it's because spiritual growth starts and only starts when we're willing to be completely vulnerable and honest with nothing else. We're totally willing to say, this is who I am. This is where I'm at. This is where I have to start if I'm going to take this idea of training um, for godliness and having uh, that be a high value. This may sound like the most obvious statement you've heard the last six months, but discipleship is always physical. You cannot do anything outside of your physical body. You're like, Wow, really? Thanks, Captain Obvious. Here's why this is important. You cannot follow God or dishonor God outside of this. Which means that everything that encompasses this matters to God. Everything. Finances, thought life, sex life, time, eyes, hands, feet, mouth, language, diet, it all matters. 
1 Corinthians 6 says, You were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. So we train naked and start by saying, You know what? This is who I am. And I need you to know that and invite, I want to invite you into that. Because I don't have my stuff together. And the more you say, Well, who are you? Look at your life. Exactly. That's why I need your help. That's why I need your help. So in addition to training naked, uh, we're called to irritate one another to good works. Irritate. In, in Hebrews 10, this is often the translation, let, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. To spur, to provoke, to stimulate. And that original word, um, as well, is closely related to our English word paroxysm. Paroxysm is an attack, a fight, or a seizure. That's, that's violent. You know, um, if you've ever ridden a horse, and you've got those wonderful spurs on you, if the horse could talk, I guarantee you one thing the horse would never say. That felt really good. Can you do that again? Right? I, I bet if you got into the mind of the horse and, and you could actually speak out what they were thinking, it would be like, ah, okay, I'll go, ah. Why? Because the point of a spur isn't to comfort the horse. It's to get the horse moving in the direction the horse is supposed to go. So you and I are actually called to do that to each other. How does that make it sound? So I think I'd rather train naked than get <laughs> So the paraphrase of that will be, let us study how to irritate one another toward love and good deeds. To stir, to provoke. And some of us have been confronted in this room by each other. And our first response is, hey, get out of my life. That, that is off limits. But fortunately, as the emotion is worn down, you have been able, some of you in this room have been able to go back and say, you know what, I overreacted, and you're right. Thank you, I needed that. Will you help me move in the direction where I need to go? And I love that. Because that's what it means to be a healthy community with each other. So we play our role as cowboys and cowgirls with one another, saying, I love you, but this can't be. You need to be moving in the other direction. The third thing, real, real simple here, nice and simple, confess, confess, we cannot be a loving community if we don't confess with one another. And that's part of that training naked. That's what Romans 3 says. The, the God setting things right that we read about has become Jesus setting things right for us. And not only for us, but everyone who believes in Him. So there's no difference between us and them. Since we've compiled this long list of sorry record of sins, and prove that we are utterly incapable of living the glorious life, lives God wills for us, God did it for us. Out of a sheer generosity, He put us in right standing with Himself, a pure gift. He got us out of the mess we're in and restored us to where He always wanted us to be, and He did it by means of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a great record of what God does. Did you catch that line there? Since we've 
this long and sorry record of sins? You have a long and sorry record of sins. I hate to break it to you. I need to break it to you. I want to break it to you. Because that's the truth. And it's the truth about my life too. And it proved that we are utterly incapable of living the glorious lives God calls and wills for us. You are, glory, you are incapable of that glorious life on your own. You cannot do it. And that's why confession is so important. A confession is admitting boldly that we've compiled this long and sorry record. Romans 6 it says this work hard for sin your whole life and your pension is death. Unfortunately, God's gift is real life, eternal life, delivered by Jesus our Master. And here's the deal. I need grace, grace just as much as you do. And the truth is that if you knew the things that went on my, in, in my head on a weekly basis, you, you'd never come back to this church. I'm a massive need of grace. Just because I have a title pastor in front of my name does not mean that I don't need to do this regularly. And I still don't do it as regularly or as quickly as I need to do or should. See, when we're the first ones to confess, we're the first ones in line to understand God's holiness and how it's linked to God's love. That's why we have always had communion here. We, we sit in the round, bent around this. We, it's always in the blue circle here. It's always center court. Because if we can remember what God has done for us, we're missing the point. And we don't just come and go, wow, that was awesome, thanks God, sweet. No, we come admitting, I need a rescuer, I need grace, which means that I don't have my crap together. And so when we come, we say, I did it again, God, I screwed up again. And the only way I'm able to actually be near you is because of what Jesus has done and I'm overwhelmed with gratitude. But if I come to the table going, well, I'm good, I can take an extra big chunk because, man, the person behind me, I know what they did last week. We're missing the point of grace. We're missing the point of holiness. We're missing the point of confession. We're missing the point of love. The last thing, uh, real briefly here, as a church, how do we do this? We, we live out what we say we're about. I mean, two weeks ago, we talked about, you know, what do we care about? What are our mantras of who we are as a church? And in that time, we said, no perfect people allowed. And that's something you all know. We say that all the time. In fact, sometimes I get eye rolls. I know you say that all the time. I take that as a great compliment because it means it's embedded in our DNA. It's who we are. I love it. But let me ask you a question that's somewhat jolting and startling because of its simplicity. Do you actually believe that? you actually believe that no perfect people are allowed in God's kingdom? 
say, as we talked about No Perfect People Allowed, that Renew is a come-as-you-are culture? Maybe we haven't articulated this well enough because sometimes we're shocked when people say, when people come to us and say, hey, wait, I thought this was come-as-you-are. I thought this was No Perfect People Allowed. All of a sudden you're talking about my life and, wait, what's going on here? So forgive us if we haven't articulated the second half of that clause, which is it's a come-as-you-are environment, but it's never a stay-as-you-are environment either. We're not loving you if, yeah, come-as-you-are, stay-as-you-are, stay doing whatever you're doing. If it's destructive, just make sure it's destructive to you and not to us. See, the closer we get to Jesus, the more he requires us. Which I like and I don't like at the same time. He comforts and he messes with. So let me, let me ask you this question as well. Where or what area of your life is Jesus asking you to follow him? As you think about holiness or holy living, through this, through this teaching, maybe there's an area of your life that's like, man, every time, every time you know, Jared talks about holiness or holy living, I'm immediately thinking about my sharp tongue. I'm immediately thinking about how I'm sort of skimping on the financial checkbook area and what is really going on. Maybe, maybe it's, you know, well, whatever. But what is that area of your life? talk about this in your house churches next week, and utilize the going further together, I would love for you on your house churches to ask, how do we train naked? And maybe some of you are. I know some of you are with others, which is awesome. And because you're training naked, you're saying, this is a season of incredible growth for me, because I'm inviting others into the process of so train naked with your house church. There's no greater cohort of people to train with uh, in a, uh, train with naked than those people. I mean, out of context, that sounds like really weird. You know? But train naked with your house church. That'd be an awesome bumper sticker. <laughs> train naked with us. <laughs> I don't know, we might have thousands of people show up. <laughs>
Forgive us for looking to culture to dictate how we live rather than looking to the scriptures. And God, show us that holiness isn't a list of to do's, but instead is an invitation for us to train naked, to lean in, to love you more, because we know that we're love you more. We will hate evil more too. And allow us to be a faithful, witness-bearing community that lives in countercultural ways, not to be weird or 
stirs things up in us that um, makes us defensive and reactionary. God, reveal to us why we might be defensive or reactionary. And teach us and love us through this process that is quite vulnerable. We really do want to live lives of holiness and we know we can't do it without your grace. And if in the process, God, we are more loving people, then we miss the point of holiness. Help us to be people who don't make it in holiness. 